Catch Me If You Can is a 2002 film by Steven Spielberg uh, that follows a true story about Frank Abagnale Jr., uh, who became, before his 19th birthday, became a multimillionaire uh, by means of check fraud. Uh, And then he uh, went about masquerading as a Pan Am pilot, a doctor, and a lawyer, um, evading uh, Tom Hanks, uh, who plays... uh, FBI agent Hanratty, uh, and it is a wonderful film. <laughs> this is Cinema Gadfly, and I'm your host, Arik Devins. Joining me this week again is my friend Alan Pike, and we're here to discuss the film that he chose for me, which is Catch Me If You Can, as he just summarized. Alan, why did you pick this film for me? Um, I picked this film because, partially because it's one of my favorites. Um, I know that you are, I mean, obviously you're doing this project of reviewing every Criterion film and you're, you're quite into sort of artistic and interesting and meaningful and different film. And when we've talked about films, often um, you'll sort of express a certain amount of reluctance around films that are so, you know, like the Forrest Gump sort of poppy films. It's just like, well, but just, I don't know. It's just, obviously it's good, I guess, but sort of eye roll And I figured that I, I like this one enough, even though it is... Um, it's not a difficult film to watch, but I thought that it might be so good that it would get uh, into your bubble and that it would uh, increase your heart three sizes, just like it did for me. <laughs> so I'm the Grinch. I'm the movie Grinch in this scenario. I like that. I'm okay with that. So, uh, you know, to be honest with you, one of the things the Criterion Collection tries to avoid is to be... I think there's a perception of the collection that it's that it's only artsy films, and I think that's not actually accurate. I think that they want to represent the highest level of achievement in in basically all forms of cinema and one of those things is is popcorn films i mean you know there's two michael bay films in the collection which blows most people's minds but is true and uh there's a bunch of hitchcock and i know hitchcock has kind of been reappraised but for his day he was certainly not an an artistic or you know i mean he's kind of an auteur at some level but he was he's definitely a commercial filmmaker and there's some of the some of the finest commercial hollywood filmmaking of the last hundred years is in there i think the reason why people get that impression is because it's really most of the newer films that are in the collection are not part of that sort of style. And I think that's primarily because the studios won't let them release those films. Uh, it's, it's I think, primarily rights issues. But I, I, I'm I glad that you chose this because I get to reject the notion that I do not like populist entertainment. <laughs> uh, I have to say I, I, I really enjoyed this film. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I, it was exactly like you said. It's It's not... You know, it's definitely not a, a a head scratcher really at all. It's it's super easy entertainment, but it was super well done easy entertainment. It was very enjoyable to watch. It was it was super fun. I I I sort of thought to myself uh, that it was like a really tame Wolf on Wall Street in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, I think some people just don't like Leonardo DiCaprio. Like he is not. He's a very. It seems like he's a very divisive actor. I get people telling me all the time. I just. I'm not a Leo guy. I just. I can't. I just don't like Leo. But I. I do. I. I have no real problem with him, and he does. I think a, a great job in this film. Um, I. I was originally quite against Leonardo DiCaprio entirely in theory, never having seen Titanic, but growing up when all of the uh, girls that were around me are like, oh my God, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's so amazing. And she's like, whatever, that guy sucks. He's, I don't know, I have no actual reason to dislike him. And so I kind of thought of myself as disliking him. Uh, and then I finally, after like many, many years, I saw Titanic and I was like, well, it wasn't that bad. And, and then I saw <laughs> The Aviator and I was like, 
oh, that was a, that was a good film. And then I saw this, and I'm like, wow, that's one of my favorite films. And then after like three or four Leonardo DiCaprio films, I realized like actually he is one of my favorite actors. And then I felt kind of bad about <laughs> your earlier, yeah. yeah. And why do you, why do you think people dislike him? I don't. Do you think there's a reason? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's got a little of that sort of Tobey Maguire. I mean, he's far more talented than Tobey Maguire, but he's got a little <laughs> bit of that Tobey Maguire, I probably a dickbag in real life vibe. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I think, you know... I'm not sure if I get that from Tobey Maguire, but I definitely get that from Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, I'm not sure I'd want to be, like, his friend in real life. The two of them were in a crew with, uh, I think, uh, quite a few other young actors in the 90s that was like... They had a really vulgar name I don't want to say on the podcast around basically banging all the ladies they could find and competing over who banged the hottest lady and these kinds of things. Okay. Was, yeah. So, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I think there's there are reasons why maybe people don't love these these guys just in general. But, I, you know, it. I, I personally, I think he's just a, a, a very talented actor and that kind of trumps uh, other things, other considerations for me. Also, I think he's... He's used well in certain. Like I don't think he could pull off every kind of role. He might be a little bit of a of a typecast kind of guy in my mind. Like I think he needs to be in certain styles of of films perhaps to succeed. Like although I mean I guess this is pretty different from something like Gangs of New York. But yeah, that's actually the film I'd seen that maybe was even the previous one he was in before this one. And I I did wasn't super fond of Gangs of New York, but it was quite different from this. Like this is comedic. Although actually Tom Hanks ends up with a lot of the comedy. I guess. Let's talk about Tom Hanks. I thought, I mean, I am a very big Tom Hanks fan. I think he's pretty wonderful, and I think he does. He's an actor who I feel like has spanned. You know, I mean, one of my one of my favorite sort of random films is Road to Perdition. If you've seen that mm. one, I love that film. Uh, he's a guy who I think spans a lot of different styles of acting, and I don't really know that he can do any wrong for me. And I thought he was just just wonderful in this film as the sort of bumbling, persistent agent. Uh, FBI agent that he was I thought he was he was just he was wonderful yeah I thought he was amazing not he, I wouldn't necessarily characterize him as bumbling because he is being foiled but he's being foiled by this really clever guy who's doing unexpected things and I feel in general in any film or media I will always enjoy watching characters who are competent and are making thoughtful decisions and I felt like even though he was sort of the underdog the whole time and was <laughs> often suffering uh, at the hands of Leonardo DiCaprio's character. I felt the whole time like he was making reasonable decisions and he was competent and he was moving forward and you were always cheering from him, even though he wasn't a cheery character at all. Actually, he was kind of like not a jerk, but like he, he was wasn't dour. <laughs> he was dour. Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. But I just love I mean, you, know, you love it's kind of hard to not love watching Tom Hanks. It's kind of almost cheating at that point, like to cast Tom Hanks in a role. But uh, he just was great to watch and funny. And he really was the straight man that made all of the funny situations um, that he got put in hilarious, just with his like little micro eye rolls and, and, and these sort of things. It was good. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. And I guess my conception of him as bumbling comes from the first time he encounters Leo's character. Uh, in the the first time they're in the same room, and he just seems I think he just seems really nervous, but as it as, as I think back on it now, I mean he's a bank fraud ex- investigator, and he's, yeah he's suddenly in a room with a gun, and i I think he's just nervous. Oh, he's super nervous. Like he, he, you can tell he's he's panicking because he's pulled his gun on someone, which is something he's a bank fraud investigator, so he may have never done, or he almost has never had to do, and. 
when Leonardo DiCaprio kind of talks his way out of it and he sits down and he's like, oh, okay, so it's not, you know, it's not this guy. Wow. And he's like, he's, he's, you can tell he's just breathing. He's like, oh, wow. Yeah. And you can see he's like sort of just catching up his, his heart's racing and these sort of things. Um, and so it, to me, it, it, in, even, even in that situation, like he didn't seem like, like, like it, it, it was kind of hard to talk him down, but also like, it seemed like, okay, this is the first time he's been up against uh, this great enemy. So it's, it's like any other, you know, standard narrative where the first time that the, the hero as such, uh, whether or not, you know, Tom Hanks is the hero in this, but what the hero encounters the, the nemesis, uh, they're going to have to fail in order to realize just how strong a nemesis they're up against. So it's that kind of scene. Let's talk about that a little bit, actually. So the hero... Uh, as you mentioned, it's sort of, I think, unclear and almost unuseful to to think about. I mean, I completely agree with your point about the, the narrative arc, but just in terms of sort of the larger conversation of the film, like, you know, I've definitely found myself rooting for both people at the same time. Yes. <laughs> which, which, given that they're uh, opposing each other, is a weird uh, sort of psychic space to exist in where it's like I want... I want Tom Hanks to catch him. I'm happy that Tom Hanks is figuring it out. On the other hand, I want Leo to get away. I want. I think what I want essentially is the title, the cat and mouse nature of the title, and that weird mouse reference that his dad, that Leo's dad, gives at the beginning of the film. I think I want that that dynamic. I just want it to keep playing out. I want them to basically be chasing each other forever. Yeah, like I would, I would, I mean, you can never afford to do this, but I would watch an ongoing TV series where they never actually get, he never actually gets caught and just goes on forever. Um, Unfortunately, this is, well, for better or worse, this is based on true stories, so there isn't an infinite number of scenes where he just keeps getting away that you could, you could film, but uh, I would watch that. I would watch him never getting caught. No, that is true, and I I think that would be a very hard TV show to do because the uh, public demands conclusions. One of my all-time favorite TV shows, Twin Peaks, uh, when it started, David Lynch had no intention of ever wrapping up the central mystery. And, in fact, you can see that David Lynch is phenomenally better at deepening mysteries than he is at wrapping them up. Mm-hmm. And when the show got immensely popular, ABC got really nervous about, like, oh, you got to gotta have a conclusion here. People want to know what actually happened. And then it's like, oh, in trying to do that, he kind of kind of killed. We'll see what happens with the with the relaunch, and I think it's now in two more years from now. But it, it's I think the public has trouble with would have trouble with a narrative, but maybe maybe today would be different than 1991. I don't know. Uh, no, I think I, I even I'm that way. I like non uh, expected endings if they uh, you know are not necessarily Hollywood or the bad guy loses or whatever. I always find that entertaining, but th- I do like conclusions, and that's one of my things I struggle the most with uh, with TV or film where people, uh, especially film, where people say like, "Oh, this is a really great film." And I'm like, "Yeah, I watched it," but then like a stupid ending that didn't actually conclude anything. Like, I want some sense of like I can breathe at the end, and like, okay, the, even if it's the good guy lost or everything was ruined or it was all a dream, I guess, which is a pretty horrible conclusion, but at least it's a conclusion. Like. So what you're saying is you did not like the last part of No Country for Old Men. I am saying that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a problem that that people face when they try to watch some of the more challenging films that that I spend my time watching. Uh, And certainly that's not all the films I watch, but some of the films is that – and even I struggle a lot with that. It's like there's no – if there's no uh, conclusion in any sense that's satisfying, if you've invested a lot in that conclusion, it can be – uh, stressful and, and, and I can struggle with it. I think in the end I maybe find myself being okay with that or understanding where that was coming from or seeing, like, for example, in No Country for Old Men where the narrative climax is and that it's a little different than people imagine. But 
that is that is hard for people as a as a I don't know as humanity we're we're not good at unresolved which is funny because that's life like virtually nothing in life is is neatly resolved no for sure but there's always sub stories that often are resolved if maybe not as neatly as you would want to watch a film about it but the general the sort of structure below that that I find I always enjoy in any media, but especially in film, is the build and release of tension, right? Like, okay, this is this is getting more, okay, what's going to happen? You're building tension. You're like, okay, that's what happened. Oh, okay, this is the result of that. Oh, okay, now they've gotten away or or they've been caught or whatever. And this build and release, build and release that, that sort of uh, continually brings you in between these two states of, of tension and then you, laughter or whatever is kind of fundamental to comedy, but it's also fundamental to most of the the films that I really love, uh, you know, Tarantino does this a lot. Uh, and this happens very consistently and very well, I think, in this particular film because it's constantly like a series of almost vignettes of, okay, here's a problem. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio needs to masquerade as a lawyer. Can he do that? If he if he if he's gonna do it, he's okay. He's digging deeper. He's digging deeper. Is he gonna get out of this hole? You know. And even if you know that, you can probably guess most of the time how they'll resolve. It's that build and release of tension. I think that makes uh, for a fun uh, a fun watching experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that um, when filmmakers want to sort of shake the audience a little bit and 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 confront them, that one of the things they do is build up a lot of tension and have it go nowhere, and so that people feel leave feeling in a way that they don't quite even understand why they're feeling off with the end of the film. Another way they do that is to, is to have the um, anti-hero get no comeuppance for his actions, right? Like you, we love rooting for anti-heroes, but we need them to like in this film, but we need them to have a, a moral, uh, uh, a moral consequence. They, we need, we need them to have moral consequences for their actions. And if they don't, we tend to leave the theater upset in a way we don't even know how to vocalize we're just we're just unsettled by the film uh and and that's i mean that's a well-known you know phenomena and i think that um there are films that, that mess with that i thought that this film obviously this film plays it very straight it's funny that we're actually talking about all these sort of like very interesting narrative filmmaking devices because this film doesn't have any of them. but but um but no so so getting back to the film at hand i i thought there's a couple interesting things in in what you've kind of said for me. Like one thing I thought was really interesting. So the the Leonardo DiCaprio character is a con man, right? And he's forging checks, and then he uh, gets a pilot's uniform and and flies around the country for free because he's pretending to be a pilot. And apparently, the real life guy actually sometimes flew the plane for a little while. And, oh, what? Oh, I didn't realize that. And was and and was ter- and was you know understanding that he had like hundreds of people lives in his hands and his and was, own and, and his own and was like you know responsibly terrified and i think uh several times i think he went from pilot to doctor and in both cases he stopped doing that because he realized the amount of power he had over people's lives it was but, too dangerous too dangerous exactly but when he became a, a lawyer he actually passed the louisiana state bar mm-hmm. And he claims, the actual guy claims that he just did that, that at the time you could take the bar essentially as many times as you want. And unlike in the film where he supposedly did it in two weeks and on his first try, he did it like in three tries and he basically just eliminated all the things he got wrong and and essentially gamed it to the point where he could pass. But that's insane. And he, the film, I don't know if this happened in real life, but the film showed him essentially learning how to be a lawyer and a doctor from watching television. 
Yeah, I, I believe that was in the in his accounts of it. Is that not that he exclusively like he didn't read any books or talk to anyone, but it also showed him talking to people as well and like interviewing people. Like, yeah, so what does the doctor do next or whatever? But also uh, watching TV. Yeah, and like, how does this type of person? How does a doctor behave? Well, he asks people whether or not they concur. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that I found that really fascinating in the sense of like the way that television uh, and movies, but in this case, television. Has a, has had a direct impact on the society that it's supposedly reflecting, and in some cases, uh, because of the limitations or the moral responsibilities of the medium. Uh, for example, again, this is not directly tied to this film, but uh, uh, in in television and movies, you often see women uh, after um, after a, a a night of uh, you know of passion. Um, covering themselves with their sheets as they get up and walk around the yes. room which is yeah. like the weirdest thing to do in real life but women now <laughs> in many cases do that because the movies and tv shows showed them doing that and the only reason they showed them doing that was because they couldn't show nudity which is like a fascinating idea to me and it sort of was i thought of that as i was watching this film in that he was becoming he was making real uh, the things he saw on television which were based on a dramatization of the thing he was supposedly doing in the first place apparently this has a really extreme effect on uh types of professions or societies or things that are hard to learn about otherwise and so for example uh films about the mafia have had a huge amount of effect apparently on how people who uh enter the mafia then behave and act and treat each other oh that is fascinating so they've essentially they essentially think that they they want to be in goodfellas or whatever that's why they joined up and now they're going to act like that or maybe they don't even want to really be in Goodfellas, but they are now. And so they're like, well, what do I do? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, well, because everyone has imposter syndrome to some degree, right? And yeah, exactly. They're just like, oh, I need to behave correctly. Well, who knows how? And I'm not going to ask this person because then I, they know I'm a poser. So I'm going to just fake it till I make it. Right, so apparently when someone says something like this, you shoot them without asking any question. That's just what you do <laughs> because that's what they do on the Goodfellas and that's what they do uh, on Sopranos. So that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. Or if you're a doctor, like you said, you ask people if they concur. And if you're a lawyer, exactly. you address the, the jury <laughs> and the defendant, even if they're not there. Yeah, <laughs> which happens in the film, and the judge is like, "What is wrong with you?" Which is, yeah. it's one of the funnier moments in the film, actually, for me. Um, so, on, on that tip, one of the things, so I did, so I, like I said, I really enjoyed the film, and because I really enjoyed the film, I did some reading afterwards, and as is my want, and I learned, as you said, that this is supposedly based on a true story, although some, there are definitely some narrative differences, and there may even, in fact, be licenses taken with the guys. We'll call it an autobiography. Um, but it is based on a real guy. And I was reading his life story, and it was crazier than the film. <laughs> <laughs> like, And that's unusual. Right? Yeah. Like, this guy, like, he lived a life. You know what I mean? And it's pretty incredible. I Because I was thinking as I was watching the film that forgery in general was both easier and harder in the 60s than it is now. Well, it was definitely easier because there was a far slower transfer of information, so detecting it uh, was way more difficult. But why was it why was it harder to do that? Because you had to do. I mean, he had no like he could, if he had had Photoshop. Right, I see what you're saying. He was literally scratching things off. If he wanted to put a Pan Am logo on something, he had to buy a bunch of Pan Am model airplanes and put them in the bathtub and take the stickers off the 
off the tails, which is one of my favorite scenes of the... Exactly. So on the one hand, he was dealing with a, a scenario where there were no, you know, watermarks and no... Uh, there was some amount of, like, very early, pretty crude counterfeit protection measures that he was pretty easy for someone with the level of attention to detail he clearly had. Because I think largely his success was through... Um, you know, confidence of character, you know, persuasion, but also attention to detail. He just really sweat the details. Um, yeah. And but at the same time, on the one hand, it was much easier to forge those checks because they were less complicated. On the other hand, he was doing it by hand. So I mean, you know, I think it was very clear at that point where uh, Tom Hanks fails to capture him the first time they meet each other that the only thing of value he cared about was not the money he had or his stuff was just the check printing machine that he had because yeah yeah he grabbed his check printing machine and fled basically right you know that thing where he gets off the airplane apparently is more or less true where he climbed through the bathroom yeah oh my god (laughs) that was one of the things i found the hardest to believe yeah apparently apparently some version of that scenario is is apparently true Wow, which is crazy. So the the biggest differences I thought when I was reading his real story were around like so in the film we see him in French prison, which was actually worse than they showed it in the film. Um, oh. he was kept nude the entire time apparently Jesus. and had no access to toilets. Like it was pretty pretty horrific. But then went he had forged checks in so many uh, European countries that he was like consecutively being shipped he was like being extradited from country to country mm. to serve sentences in each of their countries. So he actually was in multiple prisons in multiple cities. Yeah, he was in jail in France for a while. He was in jail in, I I can't remember if it was Sweden or Switzerland. I think it was Sweden for a while. Uh, He was about to be sent to some other European country, and and I think that's maybe, I think he was in three different prisons. I guess there's only one more than we see in the film, but he was in in more more prisons around the world. And then, uh, you know, obviously he, he joins the FBI, which is also fascinating. Like, it's just, this guy is like super interesting, and I... I found his story, so I said it was a, a tamer wolf on Wall Street, but also I just like this guy a lot more than I like that guy. Oh, yeah, for sure. And even though, I mean, he's still he's still treating women terribly, and he's still, yeah. you know, for the most part, I, other than, off the top of my head, other than the women who he treats terribly, most of his crimes uh, are not really hurting people that you see on screen it's like oh well this bank is out a bunch of money or this other bank is out a bunch of money or this hospital is not getting basically this hospital is paying someone to supervise this department that's not uh they're not getting their money worth but the department seems to be working okay you don't see anyone dying because of his malpractice if it showed that then you would like him a lot less that's true and apparently in real life he stopped being a fake doctor because he almost killed a kid so right. that's the reality of, you know, I think they do try to, they keep it very lighthearted. Um, they keep it very sort of on the surface and, and there is a darker side to him, but not much. I mean, he seems like he was a pretty, seems like the real guy was, was pretty for what he was doing was pretty reasonable and pretty like, like, uh, harmless, quote unquote harmless. I mean, according to his biography, according to his own biography, <laughs> which is point well taken. Uh, one of the, the best stories from his biography that wasn't in the film, by the way, was that he apparently, um, there was like a like a night deposit box or something that you were supposed to uh, drop off your checks in. I can't remember if it was people or businesses, but he basically just put a sign on it saying "out of order" and stood there and like got people to give him the checks. <laughs> and his his later recollection was like, "I can't believe that worked. How would a drop box be out of order?" <laughs> uh, the whole business of the confidence game and. And the the razzle dazzle sort of thing is one of the things I really enjoy watching in any um, anything that shows 
deception and uh, being on the run and cons. I always find that as a fascinating topic. And in this, there's this line that they use in the, the film where they talk about, oh, the, the Yankees always win because they're pinstripes. Um, sort of implying that, oh, if you basically if you dazzle them, um, then you're going to be able to get away with whatever you're trying to get away with. And that was one of the sort of fun things that you do. You see it a couple times called out explicitly, and then you just see him doing it. Like, oh, yeah, here's this check. Oh, by the way, way uh, you have really pretty eyes. Or, oh, hey, I'm going through the airport, but I have uh, a lot of uh, sort of interesting <laughs> uh, interesting people coming along with me. And so you're not going to be paying attention to me. You're going to be people. That is so interesting well people. said. Yeah. Um, and so just generally this whole business of because um, I'm sure when he, when he had the out of order box, um, he wasn't just like going there and just like some guy in street clothes standing behind inside the out of order box. He probably went out of his way to get like a Washington Mutual Bank or whatever uh, badge or, you know, his name badge or whatever and stand there or whatever and probably like, you know, do something. And then also when people are talking to him, you know. Uh, or he's coming up, and if he suspects that someone is getting too distracted or getting suspicious, that he has these little techniques and things that he does to dazzle them, basically. And it's just it's fun to watch. Yeah, I found in my own life that, in general, if you uh, just appear to be doing whatever it is you're supposed to be doing, most people will leave you alone. Mm-hmm. Like, you can walk into places you're not supposed to be if you just look like you're supposed to be there. Right, partially because most people who aren't supposed to be there look like they're not supposed to be there, and partially because it's often very hard to tell. And if you just go around in a fancy hotel and start going up to guests and saying, excuse me, sir, are you actually a guest at this hotel? Then you're going to get an unhappy customer really fast. Yeah, no one wants to, I mean, there's, the, you know, we all we always get told, like, at the airport or whatever, like, if you see anything suspicious, report it immediately. But, you know, no one's going to do that unless it's, really really <laughs> suspicious because no one wants to be the people don't want to do that like i mean there are some people who want to do that but yeah but you don't want to get into a situation of conflict and right 99.9 percent of the time in life things are as they appear to be exactly and so you just want to give people the benefit of the doubt unless and also you don't even see people like i think uh it you know he was obviously sort of nondescript i mean in real life he's leonardo dicaprio which i would think was not very nondescript but the real guy and the guy he's playing in the film is sort of not is described as sort of nondescript looking and i think that's a big key too like it it, you want to you want to just kind of blend in you want to be you want to be totally uh irrelevant when you're there and completely forgotten when you're gone so that like someone won't even remember 10 minutes later that they talk to you what you look like or what you do and when they discover that there was fraud later they are like i have no idea who did this or when or or, or or how it happened or what. And, of course, like you said, due to the information flow of, of the 60s, he was weeks ahead of, uh, you know, anyone discovering his crimes for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. It was a – I mean, it was re- it really, really well done. I also – I really enjoyed – I don't know if you put this together, but the opening credits are wonderful, and they are like a direct Saul Bass-style ripoff. I don't think Saul Bass actually oh, did it. Yeah, I definitely got that it was like a 60s design, obviously, sort of thing, but I didn't get specifically – uh, that it was Saul Bass, but that makes sense. Yeah, I think if you, you know, it reminded me of like Anatomy of a Murder or some other Saul Bass designed uh, credits. They, they're wonderful and they're really well done. It's a very nice homage. Uh, the other thing I might suggest to you, uh, having a better understanding of your movie proclivities now that I've seen this, that um, there are a lot of older films that I know will scare you, but are of sort of the Ocean's Eleven uh, heist vibe. Okay. That you might actually really, really enjoy just because they are. That archetype has been around a lot longer, and um, 
has been extremely well done uh, over time. Uh, specifically, a lot of French films. I don't know. I, I think you're scared of subtitles, but I don't remember. I'm not scared of subtitles. It's just one of those things where you put enough layers of... Uh, like I like to talk about films as being challenging rather than like, if I don't get it and it's other people get it, then I feel like, okay, I... I have a job to do. I try to understand why this is likable. And, you know, sometimes if you give me a film that's a subtitled 1940s French film, it's like, okay, well, I'm not actually having fun right now, but I know that there's something to be had, right? <laughs> so I, I try to I try to keep an open mind. Well, I will say that I know this about you because I know you that, you, you know, you will definitely try to find the value in the thing, even if you yourself are not particularly enjoying it. <laughs> Right I think it's a good way to live. <laughs> it's no, I think it works well, especially for you. Um, so, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with this film? This is this is your film. The only other thing that I remember being surprised by in reading about it a little bit was that the casting, because the casting seems so perfect, like this all star. Like you got Leonardo DiCaprio, you got Tom Hanks, um, and uh, Martin Sheen and Amy Adams, and and Christopher Walken is awesome in it. It's an amazing like, cast. Yeah, basically everyone in it, like, I love this person. I love this person. These are all great. This is great. It seems like one of these found objects that's, like, perfect when you when you see it as it is. But apparently in the development of the film, they were originally, they'd originally casted James Gandolfini as Hanratty, as the FBI agent, uh, and Ed Harris instead of uh, Christopher Walken, and, like, these really weird... Well, and Chloe uh, Sevigny instead of Amy Adams. Yeah, which is... That's, that's so, really weird. Yeah, it just would have been such a different film that I can't imagine would have been nearly as as good. So like a lot of uh, Hollywood films and films in general, the production story of this film is is pretty interesting. Um, it originally was a, a, going to be a David Fincher film, which I think would have been a, a very different film. <laughs> and then yeah. and then it was going to be Gore Verbinski, which I also think would have been. So Verbinski was the one who cast Gandolfini and Harris and Sevigny. But, and then I, it was going to be Milos Forman or Cameron Crowe. I mean, like... Spielberg didn't want to do it for a long time. He was involved, but he didn't want to self-direct. And I think, God, if any of those people, the movie would have just been so different and and uh, nowhere near as 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 great. Because, like you said, all the, even the some of the uh, super minor roles, you know, uh, the the lady from Ellen Pompeo from Grey's Anatomy plays yeah, a flight attendant, yeah. and James um, Jennifer Garner plays a, a, a call girl. I mean, there's just like it, it's top to bottom. It's just really professional well done well executed you know really really nice and and it has that spielberg so uh, sometimes i think spielberg can get a little bit cloying for me especially as he's gotten older like he's a little over the top saccharine but i felt like this film is so intended to be so light and so fun that he keeps that kind of heart of gold vibe without ever going too far and it's just sort of kept nice and pleasant and breezy i mean this film is very breezy to me and i think that was that worked really well and i think like david fincher holy <laughs> very different movie you could you can imagine like the because this, i don't i doubt it would have even been the same screenplay at that point right like I, yeah, it probably, would have to yeah. be so different right so so at that point it's like maybe there's also another because it's an interesting story maybe there's a different interesting david fincher film that could have happened out of it uh but it wouldn't have been the breezy delightful uh, journey that we went on with uh, Tom Hanks and Leonardo. Yeah, this is this is like a this is like a sorbet of a film for me. It's a nice palate cleanser. It's I can I will watch it again. It's very pleasant. There's you know, it requires absolutely no effort. Uh, I've always said I like movies that that challenge you and I also like movies that that just entertain you and this is pure entertainment and um 
And and so I think that that, that when they what, you know Hollywood loves to remake everything. So when they ine- when they inevitably do the Catch Me If You Can remake with like you know Rob Zombie directing or something in twenty years, it'll be a it'll be a very very different <laughs> film. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll. <laughs> I'll make fun of it at the time. You know, oh, why are they remaking? You should watch the old original. That's the good one. Yeah, when you become the thing that you currently <laughs> mock, it's always exactly. always fun. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Right on. Uh, well, so, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh yeah, thank you very much. Um, you know, the, the nicest part of my job is I end up watching a lot of films that I just for whatever reason aren't gonna. You know, I'm not gonna watch unless someone unless someone gives me a reason. So I really appreciate that. Thank you, and thank you again for doing this. This was this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. This is fun to do. Cool. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and just tell the the listeners, uh, you know, where they can find you if they're interested in, in more Alan Pike in their lives, which they should be. <laughs> uh, you can read uh, the stuff I write uh, on my blog, alanpike.com, A-L-L-E-N Pike. Uh, or you can also check out my tweets uh, at, uh, at a pike. Awesome. Uh, listeners can find me at Cinema Gadfly, and um, we'll be back uh, next month with two episodes with someone completely different. So uh, thank you all for listening and, uh, and have a great day. Welcome to Miami Mutual Bank. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check here and then I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> Seriously, catch me if you can. Listen, there isn't a time in my life where I dreamt of catching Leo. If Leo was an STD, would you still feel the need to catch him? Dude has been straight up awful since he ever left Growing Pain. Kirk Cameron rolling in his grave.